you would remain standing for the reading of God's word, we come this morning to Matthew chapter 5 as we read verses 13 through 16. Hear now the word of God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you, together with your Son, send the Spirit to help us this morning. Send him to open our eyes and to open our hearts to the truth of your Son, in whose name we pray, Amen. amen. You may be seated. For the last eight messages, we looked at what are commonly called the Beatitudes, these pronouncements of Jesus telling us what the blessed person looks like, what the Christian is supposed to be like as he or she stands before God. That's the Beatitudes. But now we come to a new part of the Sermon on the Mount. We come to what is supposed to come from the life of the Christian as he or she lives as, the very, as a very different person among a very different people. And so what we have here this morning is three different metaphors that Jesus gives to us, all of them collectively intended to make this one significant point. What is that point? The point Jesus is making is this. Our faith is meant to be lived out in a visible way in our lives such that we are not living undercover as Christians. We are supposed to be visible. By living uh, publicly the faith that we believe, Jesus says, the world around us will be blessed. The world will be blessed. He doesn't say it should be blessed. He says it will be blessed. Twice he uses this metaphor of light here. In the one metaphor, he talks about a city that is impossible to miss because of its location and because of the activity within its walls, which is obviously visible to everyone around. In the other case, he uses the example of a light, a lamp that produces light, even though it's only a single light source. At the beginning of this message, he also uses this example of salt. And I think for us today, we might like salt. I made some eggs this morning before I came. I made sure to put salt on my eggs. Eggs without salt, there's something wrong there. If you can eat eggs without salt, you're probably healthier than me, but I don't know, you're missing out. You know, I strike, it, salt strikes me as something that is delicious, something that's preferable, but it doesn't strike us as deeply useful, right? Salt is like an accessory that, you, that might have some utility in enriching a meal, but if someone said, oh no, there's been a rush on salt at the grocery store, everyone's taken all of the salt, you wouldn't drop what you were doing and run to the nearest store to see if you could buy up the last bit of it, right? That's just not, not a reality. But for the people of Galilee, right, Jesus is preaching in Galilee. Most of Jesus' preaching ministry is in Galilee. 
Salt was not just an accessory. It was not just this little thing that you had and it was very pleasant and you were glad that you had some salt on hand. For them, it was their life's blood. It was essential. Um, Remember this, the Dead Sea is about 90 miles away from where Jesus is preaching and the, the, the Dead Sea is this massive saltwater lake. And there was plenty of salt there. And in many ways, it was sort of the fuel of the local economy. It was what kept everything going along the seashore, especially in an agricultural context. There's a Jewish writer, Josephus, and Josephus, he mentions that there was a town on the west side of Galilee. Its name was Terakea. And the name Terakea translates as salted fish. What a great place to name your town, salted fish. Um, there's a Roman geographer, his name was Strabo, and he said this, he said, at the place called Terakea, the lake supplies excellent fish for pickling. Not my cup of tea. I'm not looking for pickled fish in my life, but I guarantee you the people of Galilee enjoyed their pickled fish. Uh, it's preserved. You can transport it. You can take it to other places. You, you know that the pickled fish is what keeps this town going. They name their town after it. Now, why do I mention this? I mention it because salt is useful and salt is functional. It is seasoning. It is preservative. And Jesus says that Christianity is not only theological and practical for the individual, but actually it's a blessing for society as well. Jesus is saying his disciples are an influence for good. The need for salt is a commentary on the world as well. What is Jesus likening the world to here? In a sense, the world is, Jesus is letting us know exactly how optimistic he is about a world without Christians in it. What is he saying? He's saying that in a sense, uh, the world is rotten without Christians in it. Um. A nation that doesn't have Jesus' people is a nation that is not only missing out, it is a nation in decline. There are a lot of people who don't believe this. They think Christians are a drag on society. They think Christians have retrograde ethics. They think Christians are, are bigoted. They think that Christians hold back society. You have Friedrich Nietzsche writing in the 19th century. He believed that Christians and their morality placed handcuffs on the evolution of humanity. And so, he, and so Nietzsche said, if only Christianity and its shackles could be thrown off, then we could really flourish as human beings and we could become the supermen that we have the capacity to be. This was Nietzsche. Many people do still think this, and Jesus begs to differ. Jesus is explicitly speaking of Christians here, but I want to make a very careful distinction And it's a distinction that that we often confuse. There is a distinction to be made between Christians and the institutional church. The institutional church is made up of church officers and members of the church and their children. So sometimes when we talk about the church, we're talking about the church as an institution. Sometimes we're talking about the invisible church, which is made up of people who who are elect from every tribe and tongue and nation. But it can include people who aren't even in a specific church. I mean, it's hard to remain a member of the invisible church. It is hard to maintain your faith in Christ without the institutional church as well. But that's a, that's a rabbit trail I'm not going to chase. Um, but the institutional church has this specific mission, 
And the mission of the institutional church is not identical to the mission that Christians are given by Jesus necessarily. And so we need to distinguish between the mission of the church and the mission of the Christian. So what I want to suggest to you is that the church's mission is narrow and the Christian's mission is broad. The Christian is supposed to live out righteousness in so many ways, ways that are so numerous that we actually can't think of all of them. Like, I couldn't stand here. I could talk for an hour and probably think of ways that you as a Christian could live out the faith and the mission that God has given you as a Christian. On the other hand, I could tell you in a few sentences what the mission of the church is. Um, The Christian is to be salt which is useful in lots of ways and with great variety. The, Christians, the church's mission, on the contrary, is more focused. What is it focused on? It's focused on the ministry of the word. It's focused on the administration of the sacraments. It's, it's focused on the evangelism of unbelievers. And, and it's focused on the discipleship of God's people. The church, as the gathered body of believers, sitting under the word, Obeying God's command of the Great Commission is meant to be focused. It is meant to be broad. We are laser focused on our specific mission so that we do not get off mission or off task. To put it one way, when when everything becomes the mission of the church, then there is no mission of the church. When everything becomes the mission of the church, then the church has no mission any longer. And so the problem starts to develop When people want the church to do good and sort of become every good, right? If it's good, sometimes people think the church has to do it. And if the church doesn't do that, then they think the church isn't being salt and the church isn't being light. But there's a danger here. When people try to make the church's mission as broad as the Christian's mission, the church ends up what? Distracted, unfocused, unhealthy, bloated. It begins looking like the culture, and the church becomes incapable of creating Christians who are distinct and ready and equipped to go out there and live as strangers and sojourners in the world. There are a lot of Christians, maybe you're among them, you find yourself frustrated that the churches aren't doing more, that churches aren't starting up justice centers, that churches aren't participating in political organizations, that churches as churches aren't focused on general philanthropy in the community. And so if you're frustrated that the church, maybe even our church, doesn't do more or doesn't have more ministries housed under the banner of Evergreen, just consider that you may be expecting something from the church that is actually your responsibility as a Christian to do. Something that you would, that would send your church careening off in a very different direction, distracted on a mission that is actually yours to do. And if the church does follow that path, all of a sudden the church doesn't become a place where sinners can be reconciled to God. It becomes a hub for community organizers. It becomes a place where people are constantly talking politics, where it's hard to find spiritual food for your souls, where everyone is just focused on what's happening the rest of the week, but not upon God and what he has to say to us. And so if you've, ever, if you've ever been in a church where week in, week out, the message is about social change, you probably also know how starved your soul can become and how separated from the life of the soul you can start to get. You go, where am I going to get spiritual food, though? Where am I going to get spiritual food? 
I mentioned this last week, but it is very easy for churches to be places where the gospel, where the doctrine of God is just assumed, where we just, we know the gospel, we've heard the gospel, so now we assume the gospel because we think, well, we know it, there's no need to say it again. And, and then suddenly other things, we say, well, what are the good things we could be doing? And we start to focus on the good things we could be doing. But if we're honest, they're also not part of the mission of the church. And suddenly those things become the new defining trait. And I think that Jesus gives us an understanding of how we can love our neighbor, how the church can be protected at the same time from going off mission. And so, Christian, let me tell you something. You are salt. But what is God's design for how you stay salty? That is what the church is for. You are salt, and the church's mission is to make sure that you stay salty. So let's take both of these ideas, though, in turn. Let's talk about the salty church, then let's talk about the salty Christian. By the way, I know the word salty means grumpy. Uh, You know, it didn't when Jesus was saying these things, so... (laughs) Um, I kind of like the double meaning just because it's fun, but uh, it's not actually meant to be a grumpy church. Um, I don't want that. But first, Jesus teaches us about the salty church. The salty church. You see, before we talk about the Christian, I want to talk about the church's role in the life and the saltiness of the Christian. I'm going to do this in the text. I think you might have thought, well, he just glossed that over and just assumed those things that he said. I want to show you from the text, the difference between the Christian's role and the church's role. See, Jesus sees the Christian as a preservative for the world around him, but he's very concerned that the preservatives stay preserved. You can see this here, right? He's really concerned that the salt stay salty. This is a danger Jesus is warning us of where he said, look, the salt can lose its flavor, the salt can lose its impact, the salt suddenly becomes less what it is and more of what it shouldn't be. The Christian is living mixed in with a culture that is really in trouble. There's an incredible danger, says Jesus, in Christians losing the very thing that makes them distinct and that makes them a blessing to the world around them. So here's the real question. How does God plan to prevent this scenario that Jesus mentions in verse 13? Listen to it again. Jesus says, If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If I might put it another way, Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, that Christians should not grow weary of doing good. How do we keep up our strength for that? How do we not grow weary of doing good? How can we be blessed so that we can be a blessing? And the answer is, this is why the church exists. This is why the church exists. It is the answer to this question. Because here's what happens. We naturally do lose our saltiness. We naturally drift. The law of gravity says that things drop down. That's not actually the law of gravity, but that's gravity as we experience it on earth at least. (laughs) Um, We naturally drift. We naturally degrade. Uh, I was just reading about a, uh, a, China, a Chinese space station that, that's been put into orbit, and apparently it doesn't need to constantly be fueled because they have a new way of keeping it into orbit. And so they have a way of powering these, these uh, pneumatics that cause the space station to keep pushing away from Earth so that it doesn't degrade and go down into orbit. Why does it need to do that? Because it naturally moves down towards the Earth and, of course, sinks toward the Earth. 
we naturally do that. We naturally are drawn downward, and so we need something to keep us healthy. We naturally wither. We are like plants that need the nutrients to keep flowing. We need the sun to keep shining. We need the soil to remain under us. The question is, if we're meant to be a blessing to others, how do we get the blessing with which we bless others? How do we keep the blessing? How do we stay strong so that we can remain salty as Christians? We find the answer in Scripture. When Jesus talks about the mission of the church, he talks about why the church exists in the first place. And you see it in Matthew 28. Jesus is giving the church his mission. He's telling them, this is what I want you to do. This is what you need to be. And so he's talking to the apostles. He's talking to these emissaries of the church. And he tells them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So let's think this through together here. The church has a command to make disciples. You see all this in the text. They have a command to make disciples, to baptize, in other words, to observe the sacraments, to fit the Christian for service. All Christians aren't given the mission of baptizing the apostles are, right? The church is. So he's giving distinct missions here to the church and to the people. But then he says, what does the Christian do? They, Christian does, teaching them to observe, it's at the very end, all that I have commanded you. So the mission of the Christian is broad. All that Jesus has commanded. The mission of the church is narrow and it is focused on disciple building so those disciples can go out and do all that Jesus has commanded. Do you see that here? It's right, it's in the text. I'm not reading it into the text. So if if, if I might summarize the teachings of the New Testament, let me suggest this is a good definition of the mission of the church in a single sentence. Now, in proper fashion, it is a run-on sentence, but it's still a sentence. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. It's the mission of the church. I didn't say that was the mission of the Christian. I said that's the mission of the church. So if I might put it this way, The church is like a place where the blessing of God is set forth, where Christ is ministered to Christians, where we're fed and we're refreshed anew, where we're equipped to go out into the world and be the blessing that God intends us to be. We are blessed that we may be a blessing. But the church as an organization isn't the one who does all that Jesus has commanded. Our job as a church is to teach and equip Christians to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Do you see the distinction? What one does all that is commanded, one equips ministers and disciples, right? And I think this is a healthy distinction because I think what happens here is this mission guides us and it protects the church from becoming everything good and instead it makes us a place where Christians can be, can be equipped for everything good. I think that's the right way to think of this. Now, why am I pressing on this so much? Because here is what we've seen in history, and this is what we've seen in churches, and I think you have seen it too. 
Um, you do not, have to, do not have to be a historian. You can just think of churches you've seen before. You can just think of churches that maybe even in the past you've been a part of, right? A church begins faithfully. It begins preaching the gospel. The, the Lord uses this church to change lives. The Spirit moves. The Spirit changes hearts. The Bible's open. The Bible's taught. The whole counsel of God is ministered to people whose souls need to hear it. And then here's what happens. People think, you know, I can think of a good thing that we would be more effective at if all of us in this church did it. And as soon as we start thinking that, and, and by the way, at this point, the gospel's still believed, it's still taught, the gospel's not diminished in the church's influence. But as soon as we start to think that, suddenly what happens? The Bible and the gospel are still embraced, but eventually it becomes something that is assumed. Now, I do not know if anyone printed my t-shirts from last week, but I hope that you'll start selling them. At no profit, of course. Why? Why do we start including others? Why does the, bio, the gospel become something that's assumed in this situation at this point? It becomes assumed because here's the thing. As human beings and as organizations, we only have so much bandwidth. We only have so much bandwidth to go to other things once the mission broadens, right? Once the mission broadens, we need volunteers for these orphanages. We need volunteers for these political action committees now. There's a protest we need people at. If there aren't enough people there, it won't be effective. And there will be news stories pointing out that only one person showed up at our protest. So we've all got to show up. And there's this need... To, if you're going to be effective for zeal and energy to do these good things that you want to do and that you've suddenly tasked the church with being the tool of. And what happens is the gospel becomes an assumed thing and it becomes a means to an end of the bigger, better thing that you think the church exists to do. And then what happens is by making the church jack of all trades, it ends up becoming master of none. Which is a problem if we've been tasked with mastering and, and guarding the gospel. So notice here, so far, we're still tracking with this imaginary hypothetical church that almost certainly has existed in human history. But notice that at no point so far has this hypothetical church abandoned the gospel. They've not said, uh, Jesus is not God. They're not teaching contrary to the scripture. But here's what happens over time. It begins to assume the gospel, it assumes the whole counsel of God, but it slows down and it stops teaching the, these things explicitly. And as new members join the church, though, here's what happens. The assumed gospel can no longer be assumed, it eventually becomes forgotten. And in its place, what is left? A group of people who are the nicest people on the planet they would give you the shirt off their back and they would probably put many biblical gospel preaching churches to shame in their kind-heartedness. And yet at a certain point, they couldn't tell you why they've given you the shirt off their back anymore. And it becomes this habit without a gospel motivation underlying it, right? There was a time when they could have explained it. They could have told you how to be reconciled to God. But eventually, what happens? The gospel that is assumed is eventually forgot. And the very lifeblood of the Christian is lost as the church loses track of why it exists in the first place. This is why 
it's nearly impossible to find a mainline church in the United States where the gospel is clearly preached. It is why these churches now push for things that would have curled the toes of the apostles and left Nadab and Abihu in a pile of ashes. The gospel was taught, then it was assumed, then it was forgot. We are not special. Um, We will not be the exception to this pattern. Sometimes you see person after person after person go down the same path and you go, wow, look, that ended in destruction. But maybe it'll work for us, right? (laughs) This is the human tendency. I'm going to try the same thing I've watched happen a thousand times before and let's see how great this ends up. We are not special. If we go off course, our church will pay the price, our families will pay the price, our communities will pay the price, and because we will lose the salt and we will lose the light. What I'm trying to say is the salt stays salty because the church remains the church. Yes. Without the church fulfilling its mission, the salt will in fact become unsalty. It is a situation Jesus is concerned about because it is a situation that is not unrealistic. A salty people are meant to be made salty by the ministry and work of the church. So here's the thing. Let's say we have a healthy situation. Let's say we have a church that's preaching the gospel. We have a church that's opening the word. They're administering the sacraments. They're setting Christ before people. People are coming to Jesus. Children are being baptized. New converts are being made. Christians are being equipped. They're being taught everything that Jesus commanded. They're being taught to do everything that Jesus commanded. What next? That brings us to what Jesus wants for Christians, which is for them to be salty. This is the second point this morning. Jesus teaches us about the salty Christian. You see it very plainly here. He says, you are the salt of the earth. What Jesus is picturing here is the world as a big piece of meat that is prone to going bad. Uh, I don't know how long meat can sit out in the sun and still be good, but Jesus says, you better get some salt on that thing. And that's what Jesus sees about the world. Jesus is not optimistic about the world. He is not optimistic about the world without Christians in it. And so he says the only thing that can bring health and longevity and stability is the presence of the Christian who, like salt, can help preserve and protect what is here. So so the idea is that, that, Christian, we exist as believers for the sake of others, not for our own sake. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a blessed person, and you're intended to share that blessing with those around you. In the book of Genesis, God is talking to Abraham in Genesis 12 too, and he says, I will make a great nation of you and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So, so the blessing of the covenant comes to Abraham and the blessing of the covenant comes to us and it doesn't come to us so that we can just have the blessing and, and hoard the blessing and, and keep the blessings for us and just keep the blessings within our own church Uh, family, but the idea is we're supposed to tell others the same blessing so they can be blessed. We're supposed to share the same blessings with them that have been shared with us. And the main way we do that is by living out the Christian life and and speaking the gospel to others. And and also as Christians, by doing acts of kindness and, and acts of mercy to others, right? Our own love of God 
fuels our own usefulness in the world right here and right now. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, he says, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. In other words, being a Christian, being someone who cares about the life to come, means that we also care about the present life. We care about our neighbor right now. We care about our families right now. We care about our society right now. We care for our government and we pray for it. We care about the place where we live. We pray for the city where God has sent us to. Now, Lewis in that quote mentions the big things. He mentions the huge ways that Christians have been salt and light. You have men in history like George Mueller who opened and and maintained orphanages. And he did it because he had a love for Jesus, saving countless children. You You have men like William Wilberforce who fought to end the slave trade in the British Empire. He yearned to see it end. He spent his life until he was an old man seeing it abolished. And he did it because of his Christian faith. He did it because he followed Jesus. You have countless men and women throughout world history who have these massive impacts across society because they simply lived as redeemed people who did not keep their faith secret. They were good for the world around them. It was good for the world that William Wilberforce was a Christian. And if he wasn't a Christian, he wouldn't have done what he did. Let's not forget that being salt and light doesn't mean, and this is very important to me, Because even though you are all important to me and you are all important to each other, none of us is a huge influencer in the world around us the way we think of influencers today, right? I want you to remember that being salt and light doesn't mean making empires shift and stars realign and all those dramatic things that we imagine when we think of world change. What we are each called to is far more ordinary. How do I know that? Because Jesus picked the most boring thing on earth to say what we are. Like there's nothing less exciting in the world than salt. I, if somebody told me I am a salt expert, I would say, was there nothing else? You couldn't pick anything else to be an expert in. You chose salt, sodium, this, okay. Everyone's got their thing. I mean, salt is is boring. Someone correct me after the service, but I think salt's boring. I can be, you can change my mind. But Jesus picks maybe the most boring substance that ever existed, and Jesus says, that's us. He doesn't compare us to firecrackers or sea vessels. He doesn't compare us to anything dramatic. He simply says, you are salt. What am I getting at? I'm getting at this. I think we are badly trained by the world to believe that the only things that really matter are the big things. We train ourselves to think that national things are the things that matter. Massive things are the things that matter. We have trained ourselves, or we've been trained by someone else at least, to believe that the only way we matter is if we are doing something massive, epic, monumental, and observable from space. And if we're not building something that, you can, that, is, that is that, then we aren't doing anything that matters. We must be doing something wrong. Maybe we're not living up to our potential. Maybe we haven't figured out the gospel yet. Now, I hesitate to share this with you. Please don't Google it. (laughs) You'll see why in a second. There's a local church around here 
They came up on my Facebook feed. I said, I need, to, I need to look at what local churches around here are doing. And so I followed them to their website's About Us page. Again, don't Google it because I'm not trying to pick on a church. But I want to highlight this mentality that says only the big stuff matters. Just listen to this quote from their About Us page. We're a community of people who's not satisfied with living an average life, with average relationships and setting average goals. We choose to go beyond the ordinary to the extraordinary through the hope and love of Jesus. As we explore a deeper relationship with him, our lives are transformed on an epic scale, which unites and empowers us to make an epic difference personally, locally, and globally. So many superlatives. The problem with this is that none of us lives an epic life. Even William Wilberforce, who changed the slave trade in the British Empire, what did he do? It took him 40 years of sitting in boring meetings. All he did was sit around with a bunch of guys wearing white wigs, wishing they had smartphones that they could play solitaire on. For 40 years he sat there. Listen, each of us lives a small life. Each of us lives a little life full of daily, successive, mundane moments, one after another. Perhaps it's time for us to each realize that to be a Christian means to be faithful with what we've been given and not to lament that we haven't been given more influence and more power. We've not been made the president. We have, we've been made parents or students or grandparents or church members or, or elders or deacons. We have each been placed in this world where we are meant to live for the glory of God. And God, by his design, has chosen for us to do this in small ways, daily ways, ordinary ways. A phone call here and there, an email or a text message. This is just sort of the daily stuff that exists in our lives. What if God's real design for each of us is that we live a daily routine where we're focused on nurturing what we have, going to church each week, paying our taxes, running a business, working as an employee, teaching Sunday school, praying for our nation, praying for our, our pastor, if I might be greedy, praying for our fellow church members. What if the real news that we need to be reminded of is that living an ordinary life where we live rightly and we love our neighbor and we love God, what if that is actually the most world-changing thing we could possibly do? Because the world is filled with people who aren't doing that. Suddenly, if you filled the world with people who were doing the ordinary responsibilities and doing all these things that God calls Christians to, you would see world change. You would see a very different nation than the one we live in at the moment. We need to hear and believe that so that we don't think that our life is meaningless, meaningless if it isn't epic. Salt is useful. It preserves. It isn't exciting. It isn't flashy. It isn't epic. The idea Jesus is conveying is that we are meant to be a blessing to the world around us. But that requires for there to be a world around us. And this inevitably means that we as Christians are not meant to escape. We're not meant to run for the hills. 
We don't set up hidden fortresses away from the rest of society. We don't make plans to abscond and just wait in the hills for fire to come raining down on the rest of society. The plan of God is that we live among these people. His plan is that we live here. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he wrote to a church that was deep in the world, right? They were in one of the most idolatrous places on earth. They were clearly being influenced by the culture, right? If there was any church where Paul, when he's writing to them, would say, you know, I've been telling all these other churches to stick around, you guys should get out of Dodge. It would be the church in Corinth. If there was any church that probably should have run for the hills, it was the church in Corinth. Surrounded by paganism, idolatry, sexual sin, ethical compromise at every turn. This was a weak church in a bad place. And yet Paul says something when he's writing to the Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So the point Paul makes here is he doesn't want them to go out of the world, right? He intends for us as Christians to be in it, even if it's really bad. Corinth is really bad. Corinth is city number one for you to not be in if you're a Christian. It's like Las Vegas, right? This strikes at what Jesus is saying about being salt and light. You cannot let your light shine in a house where you will not stay. You can't, you can't be salt in a place where you will not live. And I know a lot of you think about leaving the Portland area. Um, I know because it feels like every month I have this conversation with someone. You're concerned about, discouraged about the cultural degradation in this area. You're concerned about raising your children in such a place. You're concerned about your own political freedoms or about the challenges that you're going to be face, facing as the society seems to irreversibly turn in a way that's not hospitable to the Christian faith. These things are going through your heads. And I think that Paul would say, you are not supposed to go out of the world. You are in the world wherever you go by God's design. This whole place is fallen and filled with people who need Bible-believing neighbors and who need to have someone who will share the gospel with them and invite them to church. There are people in your neighborhood who need a good Christian example living next door, doing all the things we've talked about, living an ordinary life. So what I'm trying to say is, if your only concern in moving away is to get away from cultural decline and destructive politics that have come to sort of define where we live, please consider staying. Yes. Sound families, faithful lives, gospel-proclaiming churches, these things follow Christians wherever we go. If we leave, who will hold out the light? If, if we won't remain, where will the gospel witness come from? It just isn't God's design for us to run if it's in our power to stay. Think of this as we close. The best example we have ever seen of salt and light is Jesus himself. Right? He, Jesus belabors this idea in his gospels. John, by, John, sorry. Belabors this idea in his gospel that Jesus comes into a dark world and it calls him the light of the world. 
and this world badly needs light, right? So Jesus has ascended now. He sits at the Father's right plan. What's his plan? Was his plan to ascend into heaven and remove his light from the world? No, of course not. His plan was to have disciples who live in this world and hold out the light that they get from Jesus, right? We're reflecting the light of Christ secondarily back on others. And so we're called to live this daily, simple, average life full of these daily, simple, average acts of faithfulness. We are called to live lives full of choices and moments that add up to the genuine, to genuine fidelity to the Lord Jesus. When we do that, Jesus says we're being salt for this world. So our very presence in this city is a blessing to it. Whether you live in Portland or Beaverton or Hillsboro or Aloha or Tigard or Newburgh or Oregon City or any other place, your city is blessed by your presence by your being a Christian and by living among them and by living out a quietly faithful life. We are not meant to abscond. How do I know that? Because Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. He, he tolerated us. He put up with us. He loved us. He, he gave himself for us. He did not flee and he did not escape. He could have sent a legion of angels and escaped and he didn't do it. He was not afraid of being polluted by us. We are not meant to escape this because we are not greater than Jesus. Jesus himself said this. A servant is not greater than his master. If Jesus entered this world, if Jesus didn't run from us, if Jesus didn't retreat from us, then let's not withdraw from this world. Instead, let's hold out to them the same Lord Jesus who saved us And in the process, as we do that, we will be salt and light. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. He entered this world, became one of us, suffered at our hands, and he was salt and light for us. Would you remind us that we have received the same calling to be salt and light? Keep us faithful. Keep us courageous. Make us a fragrance of salvation to the watching world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.